This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by David Siegelman of Moisha House. David has been a nonprofit innovator since he was in high school when he launched an initiative to provide food for the hungry and has continued towards the founding of Moshe House, which he started in 2006 and continues to lead to this day. Now, I'm going to ask David to begin by explaining Moshe House, which I believe is something of an urban kibbutz that is structured to give Jewish professionals, young professionals, the opportunity and the structure to get more engaged communally and with their faith. So, David, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you for having me. So before we get into your chosen passage, which is so interesting and unpredictable, tell us a little bit about Moshe House. Sure. Well, um, Moshe House was started, as you said, in 2006, and it was certainly not birthed out of a business plan or, or long-term uh, strategic thinking. It was a Shabbat dinner that some friends after college, in which they invited other friends who we had all gone on a team trip to Israel. So it was really just a reunion Shabbat dinner, potluck style. 73 people came. And all of a sudden, we looked at each other and said, wow, this was really simple. This was really nice. And we should do it again sometime. But then the next week, we actually got multiple emails from people saying, we'd like to do this in our own home. Can we get this stuff going? And, and while I was in college, uh, I had met a philanthropist named Morris Squire. That's where the moisture comes from. And so we went to him with this idea. And I had never done any fundraising. The only thing I knew is that when you do a program and someone gives you funds for it, you name it after them. So all of a sudden we had Moisha House. Uh, they started popping up in the Bay Area, uh, around the country. And the model is very simple. Young adults, post-college, pre-family, really 22 to, to 32 years old. In addition to being roommates and having full-time jobs or being in graduate school, they're turning their homes into community centers, into places where there are programs happening one or two times a week, Jewish culture and holiday, Jewish learning, Tukun Alam, and, and social programs. And so uh, there are now 120 Moshe houses in 28 countries. Uh, we have pods, two-person houses that are another 20. We have alumni program, Moshe House Without Walls. It has 600 Moshe House Without Walls hosts. And um, pre-COVID, we last year we did 150 immersive Jewish learning retreats as well. So the text and the and the learning is also coming alive and we're continuing to to work to innovate and grow and expand. Well, Mazel Tov on such an extraordinary work and growth. And your chosen passage today is Ecclesiastes Rabbah 7.7. Yes, it is. So what happens in this passage and why is it significant to you? Well, it was a great question to ask because you know, I didn't grow up with really any kind of Jewish learning background. In fact, I went to a Catholic high school, and it's only been in the past five, six years that I started doing any kind of learning, and, and, and that's been a wonderful experience for me. Every week, I have a teacher, we learn together, and that's continued. And this one, this passage particularly strikes me because we're having the destruction of the temple, Jerusalem's in flames, and the rabbis are figuring out, there's five disciples from Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and they're figuring out what to do there, his best and most important students, and they're really going to carry on the Jewish tradition. And so they go up to Yavna. His arguably his best student, Elizabeth Ben Arach, ends up going to Diomset, a place that doesn't have famine, 
that has water, it has food, it has, it's an easier way of life, but it's not with the others. And he's with his wife. He's with his wife, yes. They go for greener pastures and, and he thinks they're going to come with them. And his logic is good. Why wouldn't they come to the place that, that has actual food? There's a family in Yavna and there's no infrastructure. So why not go to a place that's beautiful and has food and water and all of these things? And so ultimately he says, they're going to come to me. You know, he wants to go back to them, but he has a conversation with his wife and they decide, you know, they should be coming to him because he's the best student. He was the smartest in all of it. But over time, those who are in Yavna continue to learn and thrive and grow. And he and his wife, who are isolated in the onset, eventually forget everything. And his wife says to him when he asks her for her advice as to whether he should go, his wife said, in the case of a food container in mice, does the food go to the mice or do the mice go to the food? That's right. Thinking, as you said, that they would come to him. So he and his wife are alone and uh, in a place of bounty, and his colleagues and friends are in a sparse place, but they're together learning. Yep. And eventually they came in and came back for him. And they asked him a very simple question. They asked, which is better to eat along with relish, wheat bread or barley bread? Well, that's a, in those times, and maybe today, it's a simple answer. The answer is wheat bread. But he didn't know. He had forgotten even the simple stuff. And, and what I love about the passage is that it teaches me and makes me, makes me think about, one, who you're with matters more than where you are. And even if you think you're the smartest person in the room, if you take that and you go leave and you expect everyone to follow you and that you'll stay the smartest person in the room, you're wrong. You'll forget everything and you won't have that magic. And so it's to, be, it's to have humility, to be humble, and to be with the, the people that you surround yourself with is what matters much more than, than where you physically are. It reminds me of what it says in the Babylonian Talmud where it says, Rabbi Hanina said, I have learned much from my teachers and even more from my friends, but from my students, I have learned more than from any of them. So I guess Rabbi Yochanan's fault was thinking that the acquisition of knowledge is from books alone, and what he missed is how much of it comes from one social environment. Oh, Rabbi Benarach, yes, yes. And that's what he and his wife missed when they decided to stay alone, and it's because he didn't have that external stimulation and the learning that just comes from being with people, each of whom is created in God's image and has something to share and something to teach. And I believe it's Pirkei Avot who says, who is the wise person? And it's uh, he who learns from everybody. Yeah. It also teaches like this thought that it's good to go on vacation. It's nice. But if you stay on vacation, the life as you know it will disintegrate. That's right. He went to this place which seems like a resort, like we would call it a resort town, right? You know, it's a beautiful place, good water, beautiful scenery. And they stayed. And they stayed. And it didn't work out well for them. How have you seen this passage manifest in today's world? I think part of it for, uh, for, for me that I think about is that it's not trying to get to that place. I mean, it's not working towards this retirement where you can just relax and not have to stress. It's actually the work and the stress that is the meaning and does provide the sort of elevation of, of, of who you are and what you're doing. So I think that is part of it is not to have these sights on, well, if I do, if I'm the best student now, if I'm the best worker now, then in five years, I won't have to work. I won't have to study. I won't have to do those things. But actually, the goal is to be able to do more of it in five years and to be better at it at that time. And, and the other part that I think I see today is, is this idea of, of who we surround ourselves with. And just this idea and notion that it's a, it's a very much a Jewish thought that who you surround yourself with is more important than where you are. 
and, and we have we have the choice. We don't always have the choice of where we can where we can live or or what we can do in those senses, but we can choose who we surround ourselves with. And to remember, it's very important to surround ourselves with those who are going to continue to teach us and push us and help us grow. You're absolutely right. I mean, th- that idea you see it time and again in the Torah is that when someone's in a bad place or to move to a better place in a community, and you see it played out in all the rabbinic teachings on the subject, that it's basically what Billy Joel said, home is just another word for you, right? It's who you're with rather than where you are. No, it's a deeply important Jewish teaching. And it reminds me of uh, one of the most inspiring people that my family knows is uh, Dr. Ruth. And she comes for Shabbat dinner most weeks. And uh, there was another friend of ours who was there and she asked him what he does. And he said he was retiring. And and she said, stop. She said, you cannot retire. You must rewire. Said you can do something different but you can't retire. And this is Dr. Ruth, who's now 92 years old and is, is as energetic, engaged, and hardworking as anybody who's 29. I love that. I mean, last week I was reading Rabbi Yitz Greenberg is now 87, just took on a new role at Hadar. I'm at Hadar, yeah. It's beautiful. And, and work doesn't have to look the same as it did when you were you know, 40, but it does mean that you are somehow pushing yourself to make yourself, the people around you in the world, a better place. Right. And, you know, the, the Bible tells us that before Moses dies, it says he was 120, but his eyes were undimmed and his vigor was unabated at 120. So it's like Dr. Ruth's 92. That's the exact same description of her. And uh, yes, Greenberg, I didn't realize he was 87. I knew he went to Machon Hadar because actually Ellie Confer, the president of Machon Hadar, the founder, was a guest on the rabbi's husband the other day. And it came up briefly. And But 87 to get a new job. Yeah, it's amazing. God bless him. How do you... Uh, instruct the young people in Moshe House in the lessons of this passage? Or how can they and anyone else live better, happier, more meaningful lives with the wisdom from this passage with you've done such a great job in bringing out for all of us today? We have 140 of these Moshe Houses and pods around the world. And if you ask, like, what, what makes one successful? Not high up on the list, the physical attributes of the home. Number one is that you and your fellow Moshe House residents, your roommates, care about each other, push each other, are there for each other. And I think that's demonstrated in this. It's, it's the atmosphere you create that is paramount to the outcomes that you're going to have, much more so than the physical space. A lot of people think, wow, okay, I, I want to have a happy family. And so I'm going to buy the best, the most beautiful home. That doesn't translate. What translates is to what's created in the home. And so, so one way that this passage lives out is that the people in the house matter far more than the house itself, the place. Also is that we don't work in in silos. The Moisha houses have three to five residents because you need to be able to sort of push each other and and grow and, and, and be there for each other. Similar to this, when you're in isolation, it is much harder to hold yourself accountable and others as well. Those are certainly areas. And when we do our gatherings, we work to um, create those as, as large as possible. We had we did two Jewish summer camps for adults last year. Both of those sold out. And, and being together is, is really what matters wherever it is. Being together and the character and the interests and the, and the peer pressure. Peer pressure is a modern term, but it is an ancient truth. It is. They rise from seeing each other programs and ideas and energy. And, and frankly, they get on each other if there's someone not holding up their end of the of the deal and, and, and they can lift each other up. Are the houses um, co-ed or mixed gender or single sex? It's really up to the houses. We have all three. And, and it's the whole spectrum of the or a background from folks who 
you know, really discovered their Judaism when they were in their in college or early 20s, all the way to folks who grew up going to day school. So it's a it's a it's a real mix. And that mix will be in the same house. Often. Yes. You know, that reminds me of another uh, piece of wisdom from Yitz Greenberg, which is um, I don't care which denomination you're in as long as you're ashamed of it. <laughs> yeah, I think we are living in a in very much a post-denominational space where people are more interested in in what you have in common than sort of what you have that's different. So, And also, like when you bring people together like you're doing, people from different backgrounds will, or at least should and probably do, see all kinds of good things in the other denominations. Yes. And because they're by and large not, let's say, committed to their synagogue at this point, because they're probably not living in the city where they grew up, they don't have families. They're just not at that phase of life yet. It's more about their practice than it is about their denomination. I'm so glad you brought up this passage because not only would I never have read it, I would never have known it existed if you hadn't suggested it and I studied it in preparation for this episode. So the concluding question always goes from one text, which is the sacred text of the Bible, to a very different book, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells the story. He said, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. And this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. So David, in your now almost 15 years of founding and running uh, Moisha House and having seen and cultivated the Judaism in thousands of young people, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? It's a great question. One, I'd say a key to happiness, maybe the key to happiness is having low expectations. But why are you for low expectations? Explain. Yeah, because what ends up happening is when we see people who have have certain expectations, they're always disappointed. But without having those expectations, then every day and everything feels like the surpassing of what you could have imagined. Just drilling down on that, such a profound insight, maybe at least the answer to this aspect of happiness is have low expectation for others and high expectation for yourself. As long as they're reasonable for yourself. I think there has to be some bar. There has to be some threshold of humanity, certainly. And I see people who do the same exact thing, very similar, and one's disappointed in themselves and one, one is coming out feeling invigorated and can do more after that. Right. The question is, does he emerge feeling invigorated, which is good, or does he emerge feeling satisfied, which is bad? Because if, you know, if you're satisfied, this is why the Bible in Deuteronomy is so deeply concerned with satiation, with satisfaction, and is so much on the side of being hungry. So you always have to be hungry. You can never lose that hunger. And when you lose that hunger, you're satisfied. So one side, you want to be invigorated. On the other side, you don't want to be satisfied and therefore less invigorated. I would certainly agree with that. Another learning is that when you give people the opportunity to be really fully responsible for their own success or failure, they will do incredibly well. If you get involved to the point where they can say, well, something didn't work because of what you did, it will ultimately not work. Once people feel the ownership of their own success or failure, people want to be successful. And if you get out of the way enough for them to know that if they are successful, it's because of them, or if they are not, it's because of them, amazing, beautiful things happen. That's such an interesting insight. You know, we talk about that in relation to um, one of our children is a competitive chess player nine years old. And we said, it's one of the great things about chess that the kids learn when they're five and six and they just start playing. No one has to tell them because they learn it. There's nobody else to blame. You can't blame the weather. You can't blame the ref. You can't blame the teammate. You can't blame the coach. 
There's only one person to blame. If you lose a game, you shouldn't have lost. And they learn that, they internalize that. And so what you're saying is that's actually a life lesson that these chess players are learning at five and six years old. Yeah, and I think the satisfaction and excitement of winning sets in in, a, in an even more meaningful way that makes you want to do it more and better and, and stronger and longer. And we had to learn that as an organization because we were trying to do too much in the beginning where we were trying to give them so much that at some point it became clear that the more we backed off and got out of the way, the stronger, more independent they were going to be. In the book of Exodus, when God gives us manna, which is really the perfect food, it's everything you need, fills you up, tastes whatever you want. It's the perfect food. When he gives us manna, we become existentially dissatisfied. And you know what we do? We got the manna. He gives us the manna. And then we start pounding it, boiling it, cooking it. We start working on the perfect food because it's in our nature to work. That's where I'd take Mark to my first one about the expectation. Once you eat manna the first time, the next time you're expecting it to be even better. And then you're you're gone. And so if every time you ate manna, it tasted like the most amazing, but if it was like that first time you tasted it, you'd be a lot happier. That's right. Well, David, thank you for such a fascinating discussion about so many subjects uh, jumping off from Ecclesiastes Rabbah. I mean, just terrific. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for all that you're doing. 